Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last week, one of the things we learned was that God promised to send a divine seed king and uh, uh, who would fix all the problems caused by the fall. And if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, go back and listen to that message because it lays a bit of a foundation, not only for this message, but for the entire series. At his first coming, the messenger of the new covenant, we talked about the different covenants, you know, the nesting dolls, and we went there and he expanded on his promises, God did. And in the end, we concluded and we came to the end and we said that the messenger of the new covenant, this divine seed king, secured three things for us. Forgiveness to avert judgment, a new heart or nature which would be inclined only to evil. That's the new birth he's talking about in Ezekiel 36. Third, um, the filling of the Holy Spirit in us. All of these are in Ezekiel chapter 36. In us to experience the presence and power of God. And at his second coming. So that's what he secured at his first coming. But at his second coming, this divine seed king... Um, is going to judge all evil. He'll set up his eternal kingdom and he'll give us resurrection bodies so that we'll never die again. And so that's how he solved all the problems. Um, that was the eternal plan that God put in place, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did it together um, uh, to set things right because of the fall. Now, God put a name and a face to this divine king the minute we open up the New Testament, we open it up, and finally we get a name and a face. Till then, it's an obscure figure. We're learning more about him as the plan unfolds, and then all at once we open up the New Testament, and it starts, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus Christ uh, the son of Abraham and the son of David, the genealogy of, of, uh, of him. And, uh, and so, um, but, but uh, God put a name and a face to his divine king. It's Jesus the Christ. In Matthew uh, chapter 1 verse 16, it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, the title Christ is from the Hebrew Messiah. We mentioned that just briefly last week, and it means anointed one. And I looked it up, and it, the, the word Christ shows up 530 times in the New Testament alone. 530 times. And the only book it's not in is in 3 John, which has 14 verses in total. It's in every other book uh, multiple times. Now, uh, he's talking about anointing with the Holy Spirit. Why is that so significant? That's what Messiah means. It's anointed one. Why is that so significant? That's what we're going to look at. Well, the Old Testament leaders were anointed with a spirit. God took some of the spirit on Moses, for example. Well, actually, we see that the spirit was already, Pharaoh acknowledged it, or he realized it was in Joseph. But uh, the spirit was in Moses, and at one point in Numbers chapter 11, um, God took some of that spirit on Moses and put it on 70 other leaders. Let's read that in verse 25. The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took of the spirit that was on him, that's Moses, and, pu and put the spirit on the 70 elders. Now, when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. That's significant because it wasn't just symbolic. And uh, God said, Joshua, Moses' successor, had the spirit 
in him. Sometimes people say, well, he's actually just, you know, he's, he's just in people. Well, actually, a number of times it says in the Old Testament, they were, the Spirit was even in them. But he certainly was on them. The judges who ruled in the book of Judges, uh, who ruled Israel after Joshua, ha all had the Spirit come on them. Gideon, Othniel, Samson, Jephthah. In fact, when you read about Samson, for example, the Spirit comes on him and then he goes and does these great exploits, as an example. Uh, the prophets, uh, the Spirit, came, they were anointed with him. Elisha, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, they all had the Spirit on, and on them. And some of them <clears throat> in them. And you can, you can look that up. Priests were also anointed with oil and they had the Spirit on them. And the Spirit enabled them to do the kingdom work that they were chosen for. That was the, that was the purpose. Kings were no different. So we got judges and prophets, priests and kings. And when anointed with oil, the Holy Spirit came on them. Uh, take a look at 1 Samuel 16, 13. So it says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. See? And uh, it wasn't just oil. There was anointing from the Spirit. That's where the idea of the anointed one comes from. That whole idea of Messiah, anointed one, comes out of, it, it grows out of this idea. The anointing of the Spirit had a significant impact on them as seen in Saul after Samuel anointed him to be king. Look what happened when Samuel anoints Saul. It says, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day that, uh, that Samuel had said would happen when he was anointed. And when they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power and he joined in their prophesying. And the point is, this isn't just symbolic. Anointing made a difference. They were anointed with the Spirit to fulfill the purposes that God had for them in his kingdom. However, if the king disobeyed, for example, he could also lose the anointing of the Spirit, and the Spirit would then depart from the king. Take a look at verse 14 of chapter 16. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul was afraid because he knew that God's Spirit had left him. He says in chapter 18, verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. Saul knew it. This wasn't just some symbolic thing. Saul knew he was in big trouble. No wonder David begged God not to remove the Holy Spirit from him after he committed adultery and murdered Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba. Uh, he writes in Psalm 51. That's what Psalm 51 is all about. He wrote that after, after when he repented. He, uh, he writes, Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Because he saw it in Saul. He knows he's in trouble if he loses the Holy Spirit. David knew that he was uh, in trouble then. Not only was it, so not only was it a shock from last week, that a Davidic king, a divine Davidic king, was God. You know, this Davidic king, or the seed Davidic king, was God. That was a shock in the Old Testament. 
Not only was it a shock when they found that this king was also a priest, but that this priest would also sacrifice himself, as we saw in Isaiah 52 and 53. Now we're shocked to find and we're stunned that this divine king would need an anointing from the Holy Spirit. If he's divine, then why does he need the Spirit? And um, so Isaiah says in level, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 to 2, he says, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Remember, we talked about that. Israel was dead, but there was a branch or a shoot that would come out of that, you know, that stump that was, you know, there's some life in the stump, but the tree is being cut down, the nation, when she went into exile. And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. We said that's the Davidic king. We, we proved that last week. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, on that Davidic king. Last week, we, uh, we saw that, and so we see that the, this divine Davidic king that we talked about last week, he actually has the spirit. He's going to have the spirit resting on him, and Isaiah says that in a number of places. So let's talk about it, we, because we already identified this king as Jesus. Last week, we saw that John identified Jesus as the divine seed king because he saw the spirit come. Remember, he was told that the one on whom he would see the spirit come and rest, that would be the one. Uh, that would be the Messiah. That would be the anointed one. That would be that seed that everybody was looking for for a couple of thousand years, for a few thousand years. That would be the Davidic king, the branch, the, the servant. So when Jesus preached his first sermon, he read from Isaiah 61 because that, that was the scroll they gave him. And he read it on the Sabbath, first sermon after his baptism, and the spirits come on him. Now listen to what he, he reads. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed. All that in orange there, that is, um, that is Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. He's, quote, he's, he's reading it. And then he says this in verse 20, 21. He says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your, in your hearing. You know what he's saying? This uh, I am this. This is me that Isaiah was written about, uh, writing about. Notice, Jesus says that he needed the anointing of the Spirit in, from that passage in order to preach the good news, in order to set the captives free, in order to give sight to the blind, in order to bring release to the oppressed. Really? Jesus, the divine Davidic king, the seed, he needs the Spirit to do those things? Well, here's something that many people don't seem to really grasp, and that's that the persons of the Trinity are always working together, always have, and always will. There are three persons of the Godhead. One day we'll talk about that. The Father planned redemption and then sent his Son, for God so loved the world, that he gave and sent his only son. The son carried out the father's will and plan, which is why he said uh, in Gethsemane, not my will but yours, or he would say things like, uh, the son can only do what he sees the father doing. 
The Son can do nothing by himself, only what he sees. That's John 5, verse 19. The nature of God, oh, listen to this. The nature of God is both to exert authority and obey in submission. It's not just to exert uh, authority. But Jesus also lived in dependence on the Holy Spirit who enabled him. That's how the Trinity works. They're always working together. So any kind of teaching, any kinds of preaching, anytime you read, if you're reading as Jesus kind of on his own doing everything, you don't understand Trinity. See, Trinity helps us to understand that Trinitarian thinking. Now, we'll see just how much the Spirit enabled Jesus. Number one, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Won't spend much time there, although I would like to. Matthew 1.20 says, what is conceived in her is from the, what? Holy Spirit. Exactly. Number two, Jesus' childhood and youth were marked by the Holy Spirit. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now that word filled, he was filled, was filled, is a present passive participle. Well, don't worry if you don't remember that. I'm just trying to prove to you that I'm, I'm telling you the truth, okay? That's all. So don't worry about it. You can replay it if you're interested. Meaning he was continually being filled with or increasing in wisdom. It's not like... Here's Jesus, he's born, he's got wisdom. He's all wise. No, that's not what this is saying. This is saying he was continually being filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And the passive, it's in the passive, means that it wasn't intrinsic to him, it was being done to him. In other words, he wasn't filling himself, he was being filled from someone on the outside. And we know it's the Spirit. Uh, because Luke t uh, tells us, uh, Luke was drawing from what Isaiah had said, Luke chapter 11, verse 1 to 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of what? Wisdom of, uh, and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge, and the uh, spirit of the fear of the Lord. It, in other words, those things are coming from the spirit. And it's the spirit that's continually giving him more. Wow. Some people just think it's intrinsic to how Jesus had it. He just had it all, and that's why he did what he did. Wrong. That's not what Scripture says. And um, now some of it, um, uh, so he was continually being filled with wisdom and understanding, counsel, power, knowledge, fear of the Lord. Some would have it, uh, some of it would have come through others, just like we do, indirectly. Some of it would have come directly from the Holy Spirit. And Luke gives us an example from Jesus' boyhood, uh, where he, you know, at age 12, he's found in the temple when the, he was lost, and, and he's sitting there with the teachers of the law at age 12 in the temple in Jerusalem, and, and he's, <clears throat> he's having discussions, he's listening, it says. These are words that it actually says there. And he's asking questions. Three, three things we see. In verse 47, it says, everyone who heard him was amazed at, the, at his understanding and his answers. And Luke concludes the story by saying, and Jesus grew, continued to grow in stat wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. As we already saw in verse 40, it wasn't intrinsic, it was by the Holy Spirit. Third, the, sp the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. 
Uh, Jesus had just uh, been baptized by John in the Jordan, and the uh, Spirit comes down like a dove. That's how John was able to tell the Spirit had come on him. And, it's, and, uh, and, and then it says the Spirit led Jesus from the Jordan, straight from the Jordan into the wilderness. And it says in verses 1 to 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, that happened right at the baptism. He, he, he's, that's the story. It's picking up. Returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. Mark even uses the word drove instead of led. And the participle, being tempted by the devil, lends meaning to the verb that is before it, which says was led, indicating that the Holy Spirit led Jesus in the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. And... Uh, and because, because the verb is in the imperfect tense, oh, I, I wish I didn't have to give you that little piece there, but then I just want you to believe me <laughs> that I'm not coming up with my own uh, interpretation because this is what it actually says. Um, it, because it's in the imperfect tense, meaning that in the past something was repeatedly or continually happening, so when you put it all together, the meaning is coming up on your screen. The meaning then is this. Jesus was continually being led by the Holy Spirit throughout the 40-day temptation trial in the wilderness. The whole thing. He was led by the Spirit to be tempted, he was being led and directed and guided and empowered throughout the entire 40-day temptation. Wow, that's instructive. The testing didn't just happen, neither did Jesus initiate it. All this was the Spirit's doing, and, and, uh, and Jesus really suffered through it when he was tempted. Um, but he was directed by the Spirit. He was prompted by him. He was warned by him of pitfalls. The Spirit gave Jesus the desire to remain steadfast, and the Spirit gave him divine enablement. And we know Jesus prevailed over the schemes of the devil uh, uh, when it was over, and the angels came and ministered to him. That's how, that's how brutal the temptation was. It was a, a deep trial. Jesus returned, and then, you know, it says, verse 14, Jesus returned in the, uh, from, uh, to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So you got the beginning and the end of this pericope, this little episode, this little story, begins and ends the same way. He's full of the Spirit when he goes into the temptation. He's full of the Spirit when he's coming out. From start to finish, the temptation is directed by the Holy Spirit and empowered and enabled. That's how he did it from start to finish. Our second Adam, Jesus, not only had to be tempted in all points like we, but unlike the first Adam, he also had to resist and overcome all the temptation and on behalf of us all, and he did it. And he did it by the Spirit. Wow. Fourth, Jesus preached and taught by the power of the Spirit. Well, we already saw it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to preach. But I want you to think about something. Scripture has something very interesting to say. After Jesus was resurrected, when you get to Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, just before he ascends into heaven, and 
And it tell, Luke tells us that Jesus taught his disciples by, the, by means of the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. Not just before, even after. Acts chapter 1 verse 1 or 2, I wrote about, uh, he's writing to Theophilus, and he says, wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, Jesus, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Earlier we learned that Jesus grew in wisdom by the Holy Spirit, remember, as a, as a child, boy, in his boyhood. And, uh, and did he now suddenly stop growing in wisdom by the Spirit just because he became an adult? We don't. Remember that even in his adulthood, Jesus didn't always know everything about individuals and circumstances. Who touched me? And the disciples are going, well, that's incredulous. They were incredulous. There's a crowd around here. No, I felt some power go. Who was it? Who touched me? There were a number of those kinds of situations. He was, and, and in adulthood, Jesus was growing in wisdom and knowledge by the help of the Spirit. Weeks earlier, Jesus had taught the apostles that one of the aspects of the Spirit's uh, enabling ministry, remember, just before his crucifixion, he's, he's, he's having a, a theological discussion with him, and he says, one of the things, I'm gonna do, it's good that I'm going away, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. One of the things he's going to do is he's going to teach you, and he's going to lead you into all truth. Remember that? And Jesus knew you know, he had sort of an inside understanding about that because he already experienced it as the God-man. We'll talk more about that next week. But I'm just, I'm just uh, teasing you a little bit. I want you to come back next week. John occur, uh, concurred with this assessment saying, John chapter 3, verse 34, for the, now listen carefully, for the one whom God has sent, that's Jesus, that's the divine seed king, has, uh, speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. That's how he did it. That's what John is saying. Old Testament prophets were given limited but inspired words uh, by the spirit. Jesus was given the final words to speak to humanity. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. And just like the Old Testament prophets he was given these words by the Holy Spirit. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? That's incredible. Wow, we've, uh, we've, uh, we're seeing that in so many things, Jesus was led by the Spirit. Well, let's try, let's do some more. We're, we're going to be a little more thorough. Jesus healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke implied that the Spirit's power to heal wasn't always available to him. That's why he goes to the pool of Bethesda. He heals one person, walks away. There's a whole bunch of people lying there. He can't just go and heal anybody he wants to heal. That answers the question about if, you, if, they, if, they, if there's such a thing as healing, why don't you just go to the hospital and heal all the sick? Right there. That was Bethesda, kind of like here. Steinbach. Luke chapter 5, verse 17 says, One of those days as he was teaching, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, if the power to heal was intrinsic, in other words, it was just part of his human nature, what he could do, and we'll talk more about that next week, this statement wouldn't make 
any sense because the power to heal would always be with him. So why would Luke comment on it and say the power of, of God, uh, the power was uh, with him to heal, the power of the Lord was with him to heal? Unless it wasn't always there with him to heal. But Jesus needed power from outside of himself, as we saw in that previous point, in order to heal. And that's what Luke says explicitly. If you don't believe it, that what I'm saying implicitly, Luke actually then turns around and says it explicitly in Acts chapter 10. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, this is when um, Peter was preaching, uh, with the Holy Spirit and power. That's what we've been saying all along. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Notice that Jesus was healing by the power of the Spirit. That's how he did it. That's pretty explicit. And uh, that's how he did it. Number six, Jesus delivered people from demons. He did his deliverance ministry. He set people free by the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, he said, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that was in a discussion with religious leaders who didn't believe. They thought he was doing it by the power of Beelzebub, uh, a demon. That's how he was doing it. He said, I'm doing it by the power of the Spirit. That's how I drive. He said, Satan won't drive out Satan. I'm doing it by the Spirit. That's how I do it. But notice he didn't say, I do it. I do it by the Spirit. Number seven, Jesus experienced the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He said, it said Luke says, and Luke talks a lot about the Spirit. Luke and Acts, which Luke also wrote. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Wow. He said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. We're told that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. But Jesus also exhibited the other fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, uh, love, peace, patience, gentleness, and so on. Presumably then, these were produced in Jesus' life like joy by the Spirit. Number eight, the Spirit enabled Jesus to hear the Father. Jesus prayed much with his heavenly Father. How did Jesus hear him? I mean, think, have you ever thought about that? He, he prayed often. The disciples said, teach us to pray. Um, just before his crucifixion, Jesus was preaching to a crowd. Do you remember that story? When a loud voice came down from heaven. And it says, the, the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That's what the voice said. It, the crowd heard it, and Jesus said that it was for their benefit, not his. That's, that's what he says. The crowd was there, heard it, said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. An audible voice from heaven also marked Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And also at his transfiguration. Three times we, uh, we see it. Um, Thus, we know that Jesus didn't normally hear his father that way. This was, this was uh, these were unusual circumstances. And, and uh, Jesus says that it was really for their benefit, not for his. He didn't need to hear the father audibly. 
And uh, uh, yet he received much direction from the Father during his many prayer times. So how did Jesus hear the Father then? The same way we do, by the Holy Spirit. We, we don't naturally have access to God's thoughts and minds. Isaiah 40 verse 13 says that. But because of Christ, we can access, access his thoughts and his mind. First Corinthians, Paul said in verse 2, or chapter 2, he said, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And nobody does. But we have the mind of Christ. That's why we can know it. We have the mind of Christ. If we're in Christ, we have his mind. Our access how is through the Holy Spirit who understands the thoughts of God. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the, what? The Spirit of God. It's the Spirit who understands God's thoughts. We can't access God's thoughts all on our own. We can access these when we read, but we can't access any others. Um, and it's to our spirits that the Holy Spirit communicates God's thoughts to us. The Spirit himself testifies. This, so the Spirit who knows God's thoughts, takes those thoughts and communicates them to our spirits, where they mingle with our thoughts. And it says, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So that's how he heard the Father, same way we do. He needed the Spirit for that. It's the Spirit who does that. Ninth, the Spirit enabled Jesus to offer himself up to God to die. Jesus shared not only in humanity's life, but also their death. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. As the time neared for Jesus to be crucified for the sins of the world, he was filled with horror. Think about it. This was, this was going to be the greatest trial of his life and ministry. The greatest trial and test of his incarnation. His time on earth prompting desperate cries to his father. Listen to what he, how Hebrews describes it. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Why? Because the horror that stood before him. Physical crucifixion and then the nightmare of the sins of the world all being placed on him and him being judged in, place of, in our place. So he cries out to, the Lord, uh, to his father with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Yet he never shrank from the path chosen for him, but submitted to the father's will. How did he do that? How did he do that? Hebrews tells us that he was enabled to do so by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews tells us that. How much more then, uh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself? That's how he did it, without blemish to God. I don't know what kind of trial you're going through. Any of the trials that we go through don't compare to the trial Jesus went through. But he showed us how to go 
through deep valleys of the shadow of death by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we do it. Tenth and last, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Wow, 17 times in, in the book of Acts and the epistles, it explicitly says that God raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul specifies which member of the Godhead raised Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. That's who raised Jesus from the dead. It was the Holy Spirit who did it. Now, I know there's this one passage, and I'm not going to go into it today because I don't have time, uh, where Jesus says, I raise, you know, I, I raise my, I put my life down, and I raise it up again. He was talking to a bunch of uh, religious leaders who didn't even believe in the Holy Spirit. In fact, they, they attributed what he did to Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So that was hardly a place for him to be instructing them on the Holy Spirit, which they didn't even believe. Uh, but that's for a different kind of discussion. My point is I'm aware of that passage there, but 17 times it says God raised him, and then specifically it says the Holy Spirit was the one of the Godhead who did it. In conclusion, Isaiah said, that the divine seed king, Jesus, would be anointed with the Holy Spirit in order to carry out the purposes for which the Father sent him. That's what we read it. Isaiah 61, Isaiah 11, uh, all said that. He was conceived by the Spirit, we saw at the beginning. He was raised back to life by the Holy Spirit from start to finish. That's the point. He lived his life enabled by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't intrinsic. It was from the outside. If Jesus depended on the Spirit to guide and empower him through temptation, don't you think we need to be doing the same? If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to learn to grow in wisdom and to teach, how much more do we need him for that? And if Jesus heard the Father through the Spirit, how much more do we need to hear or to have the Spirit to hear God. If Jesus healed people and he delivered them from uh, demonic beings by the power of the Holy Spirit, if he ministered that way, then don't you think we need that? When we're dealing with stuff in our life, when we're dealing with people around us that we're supposed to be ministering to, not just kind of wringing our hands and saying, oh, shucks, I wish they didn't, you know, I wish they weren't like that. We can actually deliver them. But you and I can't do it. It's not intrinsic in us any more than it was intrinsic in Jesus because he was living out of his human nature. Now, we'll talk about that next week. He did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And fifth, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit to go through the greatest trials in the valley of the shadow of death, and if he needed the Holy Spirit to stay steady during those dark, dark days when he cried with loud cries. And he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then how much more do we fallen human beings need to live and go through our trials by the whole power of the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't you agree?
He's the one that comforts. He's our comforter. Um, that's what he is. Wow. The Bible warns us not to quench the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and churches. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 20, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies. Today I'm only addressing the quenching of the Spirit, not resisting the Spirit and not grieving the Spirit. That's for another time. I just want to talk about quenching the Spirit today for just a moment. The Thessalonian church quenched the Holy Spirit by despising prophecies. That was the way they were quenching him. In other words, it handcuffed the Spirit from working in their midst through one of the avenues in which he works, which was prophecy. But because they despised it, they quenched him. He couldn't work. You know, I can quench the Holy Spirit in basically three ways, at least three things that I can think of. One is faulty beliefs. Not all the, you know, people say not all the spiritual gifts are for today. That was 2,000 years ago. That's faulty teaching. That's not, it's unbiblical. It's not in Scripture. But if you actually believe it, then you will despise those gifts, including prophecy. And when you do, you quench the Spirit, just like the church in Thessalonica, and Paul had to correct them. Or it can be by discrediting or minimizing the importance of hearing God's voice. If you do that, if you discredit or minimize the ability of a believer to hear God's voice on a regular basis, then what you're doing is you're quenching the Spirit. He can't, then he can't, he can't work that way. That's what it means. Here's the second way you can quench the Spirit. Passivity. You believe in all the gifts. You know, you say, oh, well, I do believe in hearing God's voice. I do believe in all the gifts. But you're passive about it. You're waiting for him to do what he's going to do. He'll just yeah, he hit me kind of thing. You don't pursue him. You don't learn about it. You don't grow with him. You're just passive about it. And you go through 5 and 10 and 20 and 50 years and finally it's time to die. And what he's offered, you don't have. You believe in it, but you've been passive about it. You've quenched him. He wants us to desire them, to pray for them. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Desire the gifts of the Spirit, he says, especially the gift of prophecy, he says in verse 1. And here's the third way you can quench the Spirit, control. Control. So worried about controlling mistakes and imbalances. Sometimes I just get tired of hearing of it. We're so worried about mistakes. So worried about imbalances. God's not nearly as concerned about your mistakes as he is about your heart. He, he doesn't care nearly as much about respectability as you and I do. <laughs> he doesn't mind us looking a little foolish and making mistakes. Doesn't bother him one bit. Because God isn't thinking about the dot He's thinking about the line of eternity. And part of learning is falling off the bike and then getting back on the bike and doing it better the next time. Isn't that right? And then there's the other group that controls. Oh, they're so afraid of excess emotion. 
We don't suffer from an excess of emotion in the church today. We suffer from no emotion. And part of a relationship is emotion. I don't just have a dry love for my spouse or my wife. It's an emotional love. God made it that way. And then we despise it when we see it in others. Much like Michael, David's wife, who despised it when David danced with all his might before the Lord. And she said, it's not respectable. And so we quench him. Here, we're going to take a moment uh, for reflection, just a couple of minutes. If any of this is spoken to you, confess quenching the Holy Spirit through faulty beliefs, passivity, or control. Or confess if your church, you may be from another church, maybe from this church, maybe you've ignored or rejected him, then confess on behalf of the church. We had to do that years ago, and I'm sure we have to continue doing that. And then welcome the Spirit into your life, your family, your church. Tell them you want to learn, to know them better, and that you're willing to have some egg on your face when you're learning. And step out by faith and start to learn how to live by the Spirit, to live and die by the Spirit the way Jesus did. Let's bow for a word of prayer and let's just listen to the Spirit and let's offer our prayers to Him right now. Lord, we just want to thank you. <laughs> thank you for this wonderful time of being together, but thank you so much for your word which teach us these, uh, teaches us these truths about you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How you interact, how you operate, and then how you how you model for us how we're supposed to be doing it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you model it perfectly in submission to the Heavenly Father and His plan and His will and dependence on the on this Holy Spirit, not just for power, certainly for power, but also for the steps, the navigating of these tricky areas, these tough areas. It was all done by the power of your Spirit. And we thank you, Holy Spirit. We honor you. We honor you, Son, and we honor you, Father, today. And we say to you, we welcome you. We want to learn more about you. Thank you for welcoming us into your family, into the circle of love, of perfect love. We want to, we want to be good family members. We want to reflect the kind of family that we come from. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.